Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm pleased to have Dr. Ignacio Tapia on the show. Dr. Tapia is an attending pulmonologist in the Division of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is also Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He specializes in understanding the central nervous system complications of obstructive sleep apnea in children and works closely with children with Down syndrome. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Tapia. Thank you for inviting me. So obstructive sleep apnea really affects a disproportionate number of children with Down syndrome. How important is it to study sleep in this population and what really drove your interest? Thank you. It is very important to study sleep in this population because untreated obstructive sleep apnea has been associated with neurobehavioral dysfunction. So it is possible that children with Down syndrome and obstructive sleep apnea can reach their full potential when obstructive sleep apnea is treated. So that's very important. Mm. And what drove my interest actually was my interest in equity because I saw that providers were very willing to treat neurotypical children for obstructive sleep apnea for all these issues. However, when children had developmental disabilities, they may have been less prone to thinking that they wouldn't really see an improvement because of, a, of an underlying genetic disease. However, that is yet to be proven. Huh. So it sounds like that is one of the barriers then for children with Down syndrome to get diagnosed. Are there others? Yes, that's one of the barriers. Another big barrier as well is that for the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, we require in-lab polysomnography. So this can be a little challenging for families of children with uh, developmental disabilities because they have to sleep in a foreign environment. They may have sensory issues, for example, with the, with the sensors that we need to use for the, sleep, for the sleep study. And also they need to be accompanied by an adult. So implies some sort of duress for the family when they need to coordinate, who will take care of the other kids, and that sort of situation. So certainly that's a barrier that families of children with Down syndrome have expressed. So this is interesting because you're studying home sleep apnea testing as a way to potentially make it easier then to diagnose obstructive sleep apnea in children with Down syndrome. Tell me more about this project. So that project is an R21 grant as part of the INCLUDE initiative of the NIH, which is, which is an initiative to foster research in population with Down syndrome. So I'm copy of that grant with Dr. Andy Kelly, who is an endocrinologist at CHOP, and we are studying home sleep apnea testing in youth with Down syndrome, specifically to see if it is as good and feasible as in lab polysomnography, so that in the future, families can have an option and be studied either at home or in lab. So that's interesting. What have you found? Well, so far we have preliminary data, but we found that in terms of feasibility, it's very feasible. Most of the families are very pleased with the use of the device. We do part of the setup in the hospital because we use a type 2 HSAT, so we do EEG montage, and sleep tech does that. And then the family goes home and they complete the setup at home. We created a video for these purposes that they can watch, and also they can call us if they have any questions during the, the setup at the, at the home. And in terms of the agreement between the two devices, I cannot 
tell all the results because we're not done recruiting yet. Mm. However, the results that we have shows that children are within the same category of severity, which is what matters more than comparing head to head the numbers. So when you're looking at this data, is there such a thing as normative sleep data for this population or how do you navigate that? You know, there aren't normative sleep data for uh, individuals with Down syndrome in terms, for example, sleep duration, sleep disruption, arousals, and those sort of data are lacking. I think it would be important to do a big study where we can study that longitudinally. For example, with actigraphy and sleep diaries, getting children at birth maybe, and mm. you know, checking that every three months or so to see what is the progression because most of the normative data are based on typical population. Well, and I think you, you had shared with me before that there's some um, work on that in, in patients with autism about their sleep patterns and interrupted sleep and, and, and that sort of thing and comorbid conditions. Is, is that a more robust database then than for, for children with Down syndrome? It has been more studied, basically based on population studies where kids have been followed, all kids have been followed through the years and asked about their sleep patterns. And in the case of autism, they have seen, for example, the kids who tend to have more interrupted sleep or tend to sleep less during the infant years may be later on diagnosed with autism. But that doesn't mean that every child who sleep less than the recommended mm. hours would be diagnosed with autism. So we have to be careful. But there is a link that needs to be further explored. That's a really important comment that, you know, it, it's we don't want to um, induce fear, right, in, par in parents whose kids aren't sleeping well that, of course, now there's this added pressure that, oh, my gosh, my this is because my kid has autism. Exactly, because most of those causes may be just behavioral causes and may be, you know, very addressable. However, there would be always, you know, if we think about the normal distribution, right, you will always have the tail ends. So the tail ends may get more press than people who are in the, in the 50 percent. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So it sounds like you will be contributing then to this knowledge base and all this data about children with Down syndrome and their sleep and their sleep patterns and their comorbid sleep disorders. That's what I hope. And it's so very important that foundations, for example, or societies such as the ASM keep providing grant money so we can do all this work. So that's great that they have those opportunities available for us. You know, it's kind of interesting because we talk about how in, you know, in the adult population, sleep disorders kind of take a back seat, right? And so I kind of now am wondering about parents of, of children with Down syndrome, that they really have been advocating for their child their whole life, right? So they're, they're, they're pushing through the medical system and they're probably pretty tired. So how do you deal with advocacy fatigue and really encouraging them to continue and really go down the road of, of looking at their child's sleep? 
Yes, that's a great question because actually parents, since they have been diagnosed, they have been informed of the diagnosis of their child with Down syndrome, they have been advocating and educating themselves. So there's a lot to take as a family, right? It's so much that you can take at any given minute. So the way that I go with that, I try to identify what is their inner genius. So meaning all of us, we have something that we're really good at or something that we're very passionate at. It may not necessarily be sleep for the families. They may not come to me to say, I'm passionate to know about sleep and be an advocate for that. But for example, someone would say, I would really would like my child to have better communication skills, to his mm. language to be more understandable for the rest of the community. And all that comes back to sleep. So I said, start with your passion and it will end up in sleep. So I love that because, you know, we've talked about the need to personalize sleep care and how important it is to individualize that message. And I've never really heard anybody talk about finding your inner genius. You know, I think that's, that's <laughs> I, I think I'm going to steal I, that term. <laughs> I, I didn't invent the term. It's from one of the leadership books. Um, there's an author called Liz Weisman, and she has a theory of multipliers for leadership. And it's from that book. I so love you it. find I'm, your I'm inner genius <laughs> and then you can do more. So you've talked about then, you know, the, the need to advocate for, for your patients. And so access to care is always an issue. You know, I know in some states they, they don't even offer pediatric sleep medicine services, right? And so how can we change this? How can we help our children with Down syndrome and, and really all children have better access to sleep care? It's education. Education, that's a lot. And actually, that starts with the general pediatricians. For example, to incorporate sleep into the pediatric curriculum, that would be a game changer. We can use also the electronic medical records, for example, to create prompts. If your child has this, this, and that, for example, if, they, if the families report to the physician, my child snores, my child has this other problem, then the medical record can prompt them to refer them to the closest sleep specialist. In, in the case of children with Down syndrome, we need to make every effort so they can attain their full potential. And we don't really know what that full potential is because That's it may really be more what meets the eye. Yeah, no, you're right. That's a really good point. So I'm trying to picture this, that, you know, we still have those bottlenecks. I know in Fargo, we have one pediatric sleep specialist, you know, and we've got a pretty large referral base in our area. And so I'm trying to imagine it's great to increase sort of awareness around it. But then what are your thoughts about changing our current pathway, right? Because then it, you can increase awareness and, and send them to the sleep doc or the pediatric sleep doc. But then that's that's sort of the bottleneck. Exactly. And I think um, telehealth comes in place as something very important in a way to increase access to remote places. Because it may be, for example, that maybe there's not a specific pediatric sleep physician in a, in a given area, but if a family can access telehealth services to a, to a center that maybe is not super far away, that would be a good start. And then if we can add home sleep apnea testing to that, and for example, a big center partnering with a smaller center, and we can do the setup, help them to do the setup sort of via video visit, I think we have a big opportunity to increase the access of children with Down syndrome to sleep services. So do you think that HSAT then is feasible in neurotypical kids? 
I think so. And we do have preliminary data, well, as part of a pilot study that one of my colleagues is doing in neurotypical kids, and it's feasible as well. Hmm. You know, because that's kind of interesting. I remember speaking with somebody at a conference who's a pediatric sleep person, and I mentioned just very casually, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe, you know, growing my practice a little bit and maybe seeing kids because, you know, you have parents and then they ask yeah. you to see their kid and you're like, oh, no, I don't want to see kids. <laughs> so then, <laughs> you know, and he was so funny because he just was like, why not? Why don't you do it? And it may, it kind of put it back on me and I had to think about it. And he's like, you start with like kids 13 and older, right? And then you become more comfortable with it. And then you go back. And then, and then he also suggested partnering with a local um, sleep uh, peds person so that, you know, if I get into trouble or if, if there's something I don't know, then at least I, I have that off ramp, right? And so I kind of wonder if we do need to be more receptive and more willing as adult sleep people um, to maybe see kids more than we're doing. Yeah, I think if the needs are there and if families do not have access to a pediatric sleep specialist, they need to go to a sleep specialist anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So I think what you propose, it's a great idea because there's more opportunity for partnering. And if there, is, if there are questions, we can always help with those from afar. So let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment options for sleep disorders in children. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Register today for Virtual Sleep 2021. Attend lectures from leading sleep researchers and clinicians, browse the exhibit hall, and view the latest research in the poster hall. The sleep meeting is a must-attend for anyone in the field of sleep medicine and sleep and circadian research. Learn more at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're speaking with Dr. Ignacio Tapia about sleep disorders in children and Down syndrome, nearly half of whom are likely to develop obstructive sleep apnea. So what happens after the test once they've been diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea? Well, the first line of treatment typically is adenotonsillectomy. So for those who have the large tonsils and adenoids, we refer them to ENT. However, many of them do still have residual obstructive sleep apnea after that. It is a little difficult to predict who will have it and who will not. And we need to do more research in order to establish those, um, if you want, criteria of risk to have residual obstructive sleep apnea. Mm. And in those cases, typically we can initiate positive airway pressure. Now, some, some children, actually some adults now, because it's approved for 18 and older, can also do the hypoglossal nerve stimulation. I saw that. And, and I was speaking to the, to the rep the other day, and he said the results have been really good. They have been really good. Not everybody's eligible. They need to do uh, drug-induced sleep endoscopy to see where is the, uh, the, where the fracture is happening anatomically. Mm -hmm. And according to that, they can proceed with the hypoglossal nerve stimulation. Do you offer non-PAP options other than surgery and hypoglossal nerve stimulation? you know, for, for, for that population? It's very rare. Most of the time we go with PAP. Mm. Also, um, I'm about to publish a study that was done in neurotypical kids of intranasal corticosteroids, and we didn't really see any difference in outcome mm. in the kids who were randomized to intranasal corticosteroids and those who were randomized to placebo. So based on that, I wouldn't recommend it. 
Mm. So then I imagine PAP adherence is probably challenging. So tell me about intensive behavioral intervention to promote PAP adherence. There was a trial on this, is my understanding. Yes, we do have a trial for that. And we are testing an intensive behavioral intervention to promote PAP adherence. So typically, depending on the resources of the sleep center, when patients are initiated on PAP, they will see the physician, the nurse practitioner, possibly respiratory therapist and nursing to do the mass feeding and all that, but they may not necessarily see a behavioral specialist. So what we're testing here is that when children are referred to us clinically for PAP initiation. We contact them. Once the family agrees to participate, they're randomized to an intensive behavioral intervention or a standard of care. The intensive behavioral intervention is led by a psychologist and it lasts six months. And during that time, they have frequent encounters with the family via telehealth or to text messaging, phone calls to see how they're checking and to tailoring a behavioral intervention to meet where the family is in order to improve adherence. I love and that. I love that it's multimodality too, right? It's it is, it is multimodality. And you know, I have to say that it became more multimodality with COVID because the oh, grant sure. was, yeah. yeah, the grant was approved before COVID. But then when we started to roll it, we were, we were already in COVID world. So the preliminary <laughs> part of the grant was actually a mixed method study of families of children with Down syndrome who had been used been using PAP for longer than six months to know how the initiation was with them and also to know what outcomes were important for them and what measures or what techniques were important for them to roll such study. And the families all said, you know, we want to have the opportunity to do video visits, to to do texting, to do telehealth. So we heard them and that's what we offer in the in the trial. So it's so working good. I love that it was kind of their out, outcomes that were important. Not what you thought was important, but what they reported was important to them. You know, that is so important because we as physicians or as scientists, you know, we may have this greatest idea, but actually something that is not palatable for families it will right. just not happen. For example, I cannot run a study and I'm going to say, well, I will draw blood every 30 minutes for two days straight. So, <laughs> so I guess no parent would say, yes, yeah, sounds amazing. So, <laughs> so it has to be a combination. You know, we have to remember that whatever research we do, it's meant to improve the life of people. So that's the our goal, right? So we so need to keep there, that in mind. No, you're right. And so to that end, are there other groups that you focused on to really help improve sleep health disparities in children? Yes, we also just launched a study uh, uh, to help us understand sleep disparities in in sleep disorder breathing in Caucasian children compared to African-American children. Mm. So for that study, we're doing also neurobehavioral testing. Families are completing questionnaires regarding access to care, experiences of discrimination. The physicians who refer the children to, to the sleep study, because all these children are, we recruit them from clinic. They have been referred to rule out sleep disorder breathing. Then we ask them to do the implicit association test to correlate that data, those data with our findings. Huh. And so did you see a big difference then? 
Well, we just started. We got that grant approved in last September. Oh, wow. So okay. we, we are recruiting actually very good. We have a lot of interest, but we don't have data yet to, to see what's going on. We need to have more kids. What happens when, when children with Down syndrome then grow up and they transition to adult clinicians? You know, it kind of reminds me of my pulmonary days with cystic fibrosis and how we just were really possessive of our patients with cystic fibrosis in, in pulmonary clinics. So how do you do that transition? How do you hand them off to adult sleep physicians? Well, like any transition, that's a process. And typically we start talking about transition when the child is around 15 or 16. And we explain to the family that is something that will not happen overnight, that will happen through the years. So our goal is for them to transition maybe when there are 21 or so. Years old, and depending on on the child, many families said, you know, I think that we're ready to transition when my child is eighteen or nineteen, and some others would like to stay with us. And we have identified providers in our adult hospital that uh, they have an interest in individuals with Down syndrome. So it's not so complicated to transition them, but that's the way that we start talking to them. I have to say, though, that it's not as well established as it is in the world of CF, which many times they're joint visits between the adult team and the pediatrics team. It doesn't necessarily work that way. And I think it's part because it's more like a novel aspect of the care of individuals with Down syndrome because their life expectancy has grown significantly through the years. So right now mm. it's in the late 40s, early 50s, and it, used, it, it was not like that only like 10 or 15 years ago. So I love my that you goal, had that conversation the, early though, right? It's At 15, yeah. I love that. So they, they, they expect, right? They know what to expect. Yes, it's, it's important to have it earlier. And eventually we do see new patients who are, for example, 17 and 11 months. So in the first visit, we say, well, this is what's going on. And I say it would be important also for the care of, of your son or your daughter to consider transition them to adult care. Not now, but let's say two, three years, we get them established. We get to know what the needs are. We get to solve any acute issues. And once all that is solved out, we can talk about transitioning to adult care providers. And so I bet you have to have buy-in, though, from the adult providers, too. That is correct. I'm very fortunate to have that in my institution, but I do understand it may not be the rule all over the U.S. because of the lack of providers and also because the care of adults with Down syndrome seems somewhat novel. Mm. So how can we learn from your experiences to help improve the sleep health of our communities? I think we need to team up between adult and pediatric providers because, you know, medicine has advanced a lot and luckily now many genetic diseases that they didn't live past childhood, now they go all the way through adulthood. So we need to bridge that gap. And the only way that we can do it is teaming up between the pediatric and adult providers and maybe have quarterly meetings to discuss our patients that are ready to be transitioned and adult providers can discuss with us new patients that are have arrived to the practice, that all of them, I'm assuming, will be in the young age range, early 20s or so, so we can come up to common criteria and consensus. But I feel that a paper on that actually is missing, sort of like mm. a recommendation. Well, and I kind of also appreciate that you're challenging our current algorithm and paradigm. Even this idea of exploring home sleep apnea testing in children, right? You know, the, the goal is to improve access to care. And so then you're kind of 
challenging what the bottlenecks are exactly. you know, and that helps us evolve as a field, right? Exactly. And I do recognize that the subject of home sleep apnea testing may be somewhat touchy, that people may think, oh, okay, maybe there is no more role for in-lab studies, right. or technicians may think, you know, we may lose our jobs. But actually, at least in pediatrics, that not the intention. All many sleep labs actually did have a huge waiting list. And at least if we can do some of those studies in the comfort of the house, be more appropriate for the child, be medically sound, the data that we're going to obtain from there, we can reserve the scarce, if you want, in lab beds for, mm-hmm. chi- for children who require supplemental oxygen, who require some sort of ventilation, either PAP or other forms of ventilation that need to be studied in the lab and to do more complex cases. Because we do have a lot of complex cases that actually I don't think they would be better served at home. However, the baseline diagnostic studies of older kids, some of them could be done at home. That's fair. That's fair. So tell me, what's next for you? Well, um, we are applying with my colleague, Chris Cielo, we're applying for a grant Another grant with home sleep apnea testing to test that in neurotypical kids. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, so we want to do a randomized control trial. That's what we were proposing. So children will randomize either to home sleep apnea testing first or in lab polysonography first, then they will switch. So we have both data and to see what we obtain from there. Well, and it sounds like you'll have um, other collaborators too. You know, Shannon Sullivan was talking about um, how she had to really shift to serve her patients during the pandemic. <laughs> so there weren't any <laughs> guidelines. And so, you know, she was sort of faced with this, well, I can't just not test our our patients, right? We can't just put them off. And so she really was very thoughtful about, well, how can we deploy home sleep apnea testing in this population? So it sounds like this is a very timely topic for you. It is very timely because we don't really know what are the effects of all those children who were not tested during the pandemic, because they weren't. No, you're exactly right. So that we don't know. We will know in years from now what the trends are in different health indicators, because as I mentioned, sleep is related to everything. So anybody in any field of medicine where they're doing clinical research, if they ask a sleep question, that will come come back positive. Well, thank you so much for bringing attention to the needs of children with Down syndrome and for your work to really improve the diagnosis and treatment. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.